Welcome everybody to this evening session of the IPS Singapore Perspectives Conference 2021 entitled Reset. My name is Christopher Gee, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, and I'm the moderator this evening. Before I start the session and sketch out what we hope to cover this evening and introduce the panelists, please allow me to run through some brief administrative matters. Please submit your questions for the panelists via pigeonhole in the question submission section on this forums page. You can do this at any time during the session. We invite all at our conference to contribute to our discussions in a respectful and safe manner, focused on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to act in a way to ensure that this is always the case in all of the chat or Q&A functions at our conference site. Those of you who joined us in today's two earlier sessions will know that we looked at jobs and skills upgrading involving the value of workers in certain age groups, the old and the young, as well as those with disabilities. And also at the idea of sustainability in our economy or society, in our businesses, and even in our own lives. We turn now to the topic of the global economy in this session. We have two speakers who will make their remarks on this broad but vital topic for 15 minutes each. And then I will ask our two discussants to, to respond to what the speakers have said and also to share their own perspectives on the future of the global economy and the various scenarios for Singapore's role and place in it. We will then have an open discussion session and we very much value your inputs to the conversation throughout. I will very briefly introduce each of the panelists in turn, but you will have their more detailed biographies available to you in the speakers list on this forum page. The pandemic-induced economic dislocations of the last 12 months are still with us and are very salient. Trillions of dollars of lost output, millions of jobs lost, uh, and are still at risk. Many countries are still in lockdown mode with their countries or economies stuttering, and economists have reached uh, through a, a veritable alphabet soup to describe the shape of any potential recovery. There has been unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus which have injected liquidity into the economy, saving many jobs and livelihoods. And all of this stimulus seems to have resulted in soaring asset markets, but low yields for savers and negative real interest rates and the prospect of anemic returns for business. We should consider too the impact of the huge rise in the global debt burden at the systemic level globally in terms of financial markets stability for different groups of countries as well as amongst households. If we were to ask, however, for a reset, a return to the old normal conditions of just four or five years back, we would be reminded of a global economy still struggling to achieve escape velocity from the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. And we would also be confronted by issues arising from deglobalization and protectionism, rising inequality and many social imbalances. The rise in the digital economy is perhaps encapsulated in what we, have been, we are terming the gig economy or the platform economy presents us with new ways of working and organizing enterprise. All this has created many opportunities for those with the wherewithal to take advantage, but also challenges those people and businesses that are not able to self-organize or to reshape their business operations to adapt accordingly. Some of the certainties that have underpinned Singapore's economic success in the past seem no longer as immutable as before. Globalization, free trade, the power of a rapidly rising and prosperous middle class, especially in Asia. 
So where do the fundamental engines of Singapore's value add lie? What is the future of Singapore as a regional or global hub in a world of hyper-connectivity? When, or actually more importantly, how might we better enable the kinds of unicorn businesses that transform into global leaders, the likes of Elon Musk's Tesla? I'm sure we will be able to address at least some of these issues in this session. Let me ask, now ask the speakers and the discussants to speak on them. Professors, Professor Beatrice Verde Dumaro is our first speaker and she will touch on some of the broad issues just depicted. She is president of the Center for Economic Policy Research and professor of international economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. She's also research professor and distinguished fellow at the INSEAD Emerging Markets Institute. Prop Beatrice, over to you. Thank you very much, Christopher. It's a real pleasure to be here. And let me start out by saying that um, I have been in Singapore for almost six years now um, at the Emerging Markets Institute, and I truly admire and love this country. One of the things I so much admire is the, um, the determination uh, to always look ahead far into the future and also the, what I perceive as a determination in Singapore uh, to um, get ahead and to stay ahead. Uh, this is much, much more pronounced than in other countries that I am uh, familiar with and is something uh, that others can really learn from Singapore. So this is why I was happy to accept this invitation to speak about the global economy and I will uh, speak about two uh, broad topics. First, the legacy of this pandemic crisis, then the longer term outlook, and finally, a few thoughts on how this could, what this implies in terms of challenges for Singapore. Um, in terms of the legacy of this pandemic, I think of it in terms, I, I think of four, um, four broad themes. The pandemic leaves behind a poorer world, a more unequal world, a world in which many countries face difficult macroeconomic outlooks and a, dif a difficult discussion about how to reshape their governments and central banks. And finally, possibly um, longer term scarring, both in terms of potential output and political uh, repercussions such as polarization. So let me give you a few uh, figures that are pertinent to this. Um, 2020, the outlook, the last outlook of the forecast for this year of the IMF um, forecasts that the world will be, uh, that GDP of the whole world will be reclining at a rate of minus 4.4 and almost minus 6% for uh, advanced countries. When you go onto the IMF webpage, you find some maps that show you how the distribution of growth rates are, uh, are forecast for this year. And basically, it is a deeply red map. It's, uh, there are hardly any countries that will succeed in having a positive growth rate. And the green ones, i.e. the ones with positive growth rates for this year, are quite concentrated in Asia. Everything else uh, looks uh, deeply red. Moreover, when you when you try to understand what are the reasons, it, it shows that the COVID, uh, the, the way that countries have dealt with the COVID pandemic 
So the question of lives versus of livelihoods um, does not pose itself in, a, uh, in, in the broad spectrum. In other words, countries that have dealt with the pandemic in a better way, more successfully by, by, by keeping cases per millions relatively low, have also tended to have higher growth rates than the ones where there have been really large, large outbreaks uh, in, in proportion to the population. This is not true everywhere, but the overall picture uh, is, is this. The more unequal world this has left behind uh, can be highlighted with a few numbers uh, coming from the United States where inequality within has already been a topic uh, before, as we all know. Um, for instance, it's true that in during 2020, a black or Hispanic woman in America, in the US, was double had a double as high probability of losing the job uh, as a white um, a white male. But even the white male had unemployment rates of about minus six percent. Um, it's Compared to the global financial crisis, interestingly enough, the, the age pattern is not quite the same. So it's less, it's not really age, it's not the young, which were the most exposed during the global financial crisis, but it's more or less through all ages. What is very pronounced and even worse than in the global financial crisis is the less educated, the ones that have less than high school as education in the US. Um, have been the ones most exposed to job loss. So this, these are some of the inequalities that we are well familiar with and that have, of course, already been a problem before the pandemic has st uh, strongly exacerbated them. Now, more unequal is also true across the world. According to World Bank estimates, about 100 to 150 million more people will be in living in extreme poverty than this would have been the case in the pre-pandemic uh, projection. And then there are the, diff the differences across countries in how much they were able to uh, replace incomes. Um, Christopher, you already mentioned that many countries have been very, very um, uh, active with their fiscal policies, but also with monetary policies in uh, sustaining incomes, both of households and firms. This is mostly, of course, the case for advanced countries. But one of the consequences is that uh, advanced countries are coming out of this pandemic with a uh, debt ratio of that has that is really at historic highs, has not been this high since the Second World War. Overall, the debt ratio of the uh, advanced countries is 124% uh, of GDP. Um, and also for emerging markets, it increased quite a bit. It's now at more or less, you can remember, half about 64% of GDP, according to IMF uh, forecasts. Um, central banks' purchases of government debt have been very important in this pandemic, between 70, between 50 and 70%, depending on the country, Japan being the highest of government um, securities uh, that were issued during 2020 were purchased by central banks. And this kind of quantitative easing and, uh, and, and, uh, and central bank um, action uh, has also been much, much more pronounced in emerging markets than in previous uh, occasions. One of the highlights or the, the positive um, 
uh, outcomes that we well, on macroeconomic terms that we can um, count on is the fact that for advanced countries where incomes for households have been uh, have been uh, have, have been sustained by um, governments uh, household savings rates have also increased quite a lot during this uh, during this pandemic so for instance in france uh, they increased from 15% to now almost 20% so households are coming out of this pandemic with what has been uh, a large forced saving and uh, the the, uh, the the short term outlook is that uh, there is there should be quite a bit of catch up and willingness and wish to spend this so the, in the short run, the world, and again, looking at the map uh, depicting the growth rates forecasts for next year, the, the world looks very green, actually dark green in many cases. World economic growth is forecast to be five, more than 5% of GDP for advanced countries, almost four, and for emerging markets, uh, 6% uh, of GDP. So there is, a, there is, in the short run, the expectation of a fast, uh, catch up or recovery. Uh, but the, the real question and the really important and um, let, uh, ultimately um, mo most difficult question is what will be the longer term consequences in terms of productivity, in terms of potential growth. And there it is quite hard uh, to make a case that uh, the consequences will not be negative. Um, you can make some arguments around the, the, the digitalization and its impact, but uh, everything else that has to do with scarring uh, would, would, uh, would lead you to forecast lower productivity and potential growth going forward. What is also more likely, now I'm already talking about the longer term, uh, the longer term issues. So one, number one there is how much will productivity be long-term long impact on productivity? The second question is deglobalization. The pandemic has led to a very clear pattern of deglobalization. And the question is, has this caused permanent damage to the global workplace? In the pandemic, governments have tended to look out for their own citizens, for their own jobs, and they have tended to look inwards. Is this just going to go away after the pandemic or not? That is one of the big questions. Um, then there is the question of deglobalization and regional integration. Um, Europe, for instance, clearly is stronger today than it was a year ago, because ultimately Europe succeeded in um, managing the pandemic in a way that has uh, increased the forces of solidarity, although it could well have gone in uh, the other direction. So regional integration in Europe has been strengthened. Asia looks more to Asia. The question here also is, will this remain after the pandemic or is this, uh, is this was this just a temporary uh, regional integration? And finally, because the pie will not grow so quickly, there will be a rise of distributional issues. And that brings me very last point to what I see as three main challenges uh, that arise from these global, uh, from these global forces um, and outlooks for challenges for Singapore. One is the increasing continue to increase wealth and prosperity by maintaining the global hub status which clearly 
uh, Singapore has been extremely um, successful in creating a safe haven for capital, macroeconomic stability and credibility of its political institutions has been a magnet for both for capital and for human capital. Of course, this requires open borders for both. And, we ba and balancing this with what I, uh, would, what I think will be increasing demands for protection, questions of how to distribute the pie and the pie that will probably also here not be growing at the same rate as before, and this more general debate about efficiency versus equality. And finally, the last one is um, how can Singapore and hopefully um, could remain the bridging in this bridging function because between what I would call broadly the West and the East, or will um, Singapore and other countries be forced to choose? So that's my initial remarks. I look forward to the debate. Thanks, uh, Prof. Beatrice, for that extensive far-reaching analysis of the legacy of COVID to set the scene for the global economy, as well as your thoughts for the world ahead uh, and the challenges for Singapore. Um, you, you set out three um, sort of uh, areas where um, we should be looking at uh, the hub status, um, the issues about protectionism, uh, and then finally, um, you know, looking at uh, the, um, the, the, the bridging role that, that connectivity that Singapore provides uh, across uh, different regions uh, in the world. Um, also, I'm interested in what you referred to as economic scarring, or to use a more technical term, the hysteresis that Senior Minister Thaman referred to this morning. I'm sure we'll come back to these matters later. We now turn the time to Professor Linda Lim, who is Professor Emerita of Corporate Strategy and International Business at the University of Michigan. Prof. Linda, over to you for your remarks. Hi. So I will focus my remarks on how long-term structural trends in the global economy will impact the Singapore economy and how we will need to respond. So the five long-term global trends that the pandemic is accelerating and deepening, not necessarily initiating, that I will focus on are technological advances, deglobalization, climate change mitigation, geopolitical tensions, and a focus on domestic inequality. First, with respect to technological advances in automation, artificial intelligence, and digitalization, these will occur in services as well as manufacturing. They will reduce labor intensity, increase productivity, and create new market opportunities, and thus should be welcomed by Singapore's affluent, chronically labor short, and rapidly aging society. Second, deglobalization, uh, as we have heard, uh, has been intensified by increased nationalist and status policies in response to the pandemic. And these will reduce or reduce growth in business travel, tourism, transportation, and global supply chains. Third, Climate change mitigation requires reduction in fossil fuel production and consumption and in energy intensive industries. And there has also led to reduced tolerance of free riders in the, on the global environment. Fourth, geopolitical tensions, chiefly the US-China competition, will increase pressure on third countries to choose between the two superpowers in international investments and policy regimes. And finally, on domestic inequality, increased um, 
political, social, and intellectual challenges uh, to neoliberal orthodoxy, market fundamentalism, and shareholder capitalism have arisen in major economies, and they're focused particularly on reducing domestic inequality, subjecting investments to ESG, environmental, social, and governance, and DEI, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, rather than purely financial criteria. Taken together, these intertwined trends profoundly challenge the future trajectory of Singapore's dominant economic sectors, including tourism, mice, oil and gas, marine, aviation, heavy chemicals, and electronics, while also enhancing opportunities in new sectors, such as carbon trading and finance, digital health and education, and elder care um, innovations. So these trends also challenge various aspects uh, of our long established model of state-directed export-oriented foreign investment-led disproportionately manufacturing focus and foreign skills and labor-dependent economic development. So I'll look at each of these also happens to be five uh, features in turn. State direction, government support for industry like using tax breaks and subsidies to attract foreign investment and promote targeted industries is worldwide either or both A, becoming less politically uh, acceptable as we have seen from US and EU criticisms of China's use of status policies as being as constituting unfair competition, or B, they could be increasingly emulated as strategic national industrial policy, uh, especially in promoting technological innovation. We've already seen this in China, is increasing in the EU and UK, and we can expect to see it soon in the US under the Biden administration. So whether A, international objections, or B, international emulation predominates, it will become more difficult for Singapore going forward to attract investment through the use of so-called investment incentives. If global competition becomes competition between states or national entities to support particular technologies, industries, and firms within national boundaries, the countries with the bigger markets, productive and fiscal capacity will win. As an alternative, Singapore will need to devise ways to encourage and allow the emergence of a strong local private sector, including by seeding some areas of activity now dominated by GLCs. And by the way, I was looking at a 2002 speech by uh, Lee Kuan Yew, in which he bemoaned uh, the lack of domestic private entrepreneurship in Singapore and had various theories, but it was an interview uh, he gave to institutional investors. So it is something that we have known about for a long time. Second, export orientation is necessary for the Singapore economy given our small size. But global trends suggest that Singapore needs to embed itself in a larger market where our exports will be considered regional sales rather than foreign imports. This requires a shift from focusing on distant destination markets like America, Europe, even China and Japan, to what neighboring Southeast Asia, where we have or should have geographic resource, technological, political or cultural advantages, even though those countries are also becoming more nationalist. Third, foreign investment will still be needed in Singapore like in every country, even the US and China. 
but it will be challenged by efforts in sending countries to bring jobs back home, to reduce the monopoly power of large firms in the face of winner-takes-all technological change, to combat unfair foreign competition, and to collect higher taxes on footloose corporations and wealthy individuals to fund expanded industrial policy and social safety nets. So foreign investment will need to be focused on Singapore and or Southeast Asia and rather than on more distant markets and supply chains. So you have to answer the question, why do you have to do this in Singapore rather than in the US or Germany or UK? So that's a question we have to answer. Fourth, advanced manufacturing, which Singapore covers, is also coveted by the home countries of multinational investors. For them, manufacturing has become a strategic sector that foreign governments luring with incentives is seen as increasingly suspect. At the same time, the energy intensity that manufacturing requires in production and long distance transportation runs afoul of climate change mitigation. Manufacturing is a much larger share of Singapore's economy than that of any other advanced economy or global city, except perhaps South Korea, and therefore it should be transformed or downsized through new technologies and new marketing orientations to be asset light, regionally rather than globally focused and less energy intensive. Finally, dependence on foreign skills and labor will be reduced by automation, AI and digitalization, including in sectors like construction, retail and many services, which in Singapore have long languished behind the global best practice frontier in technology, organization, and productivity. As one example, digitalization, which enables remote working, increases demand for services, but also increases supply side combination. It enables someone in Singapore to work from home for an employer and produce for a market located anywhere in the world. But it also puts that person in Singapore in competition with people with similar skills elsewhere. So instead of customers employing Indian or Chinese foreign talent in Singapore, they can be employed in their lower cost home countries at lower salaries. In the US, we see this in tech companies increasing willingness to employ talent located outside of tech clusters or mega hubs like Silicon Valley, Seattle and New York, often at lower salaries. This has already led to some softening in commercial and residential property prices and rentals in these expensive locations, which of course is good for both businesses and workers. In other words, technology increasingly enables disintermediation or the bypassing of hubs and the hub and spoke business model. Like all these trends, it is only partial. There will still be a role for regional or local hubs given time zone, regulatory and tax and other constraints. But technology enabled disintermediation does suggest a reconfiguration of any hub role that Singapore aspires to in services, including financial and digital services, especially if geopolitical constraints intervene. For example, it's not difficult to envisage a reality where the US might forbid US tech company investments in a foreign location where there might be technology leakage to China via employment of Chinese nationals or recent migrants or reliance on Chinese suppliers or customers. 
or the US might restrict financial institutions engagements with select Chinese companies and individuals, including stock exchange listings, for example. China could ban or blacklist third country satellites of US companies, refuse to approve third country M&A deals, or demand compensation from companies which comply with US or other international sanctions. The permutations are endless and third countries could easily be caught between the extraterritorial legal claims of both powers. You cannot be a hub if the sport countries refuse to have anything to do with each other. In sum, post-pandemic global trends will both force and enable Singapore to develop unique indigenous capabilities that are less dependent on foreign labor talent and capital, less dependent on global supply, supply chains and markets, less dependent on manufacturing and on less dependent on state direction, support and monopoly power. Instead, we need to develop an ecosystem that produces independent, private rather than state-linked or state-dependent enterprise, is focused on the close regional rather than distant global markets, as I happen to say in the 2015 IPS Perspectives Conference, and is environmentally as well as socially sustainable locally and internationally. What sectors and industries will emerge will be the outcome of market forces shifting in unpredictable directions and the risks and strategies undertaken by private sector entrepreneurs anticipating and responding to them based on the social, educational and infrastructural foundations built by the state and civil society. Thank you. Thanks, Prof. Linda. Um, you've, you've certainly laid down the, the challenge uh, uh, as you see it uh, for Singapore uh, in terms of developing uh, a, a new ecosystem, uh, perhaps not relying so much on, on, on state-driven uh, uh, entrepreneurship and enterprise, uh, but to develop uh, more private sector uh, arrangements. Um, but a lot of what you talked about uh, will involve quite a lot of restructuring, um, quite a lot of gut-wrenching impacts on our society. And again, I, I think uh, we should return to some of these, uh, especially as it affects um, inequality and redistribution uh, here in Singapore. May I now ask uh, Mr. Victor Mills, uh, Chief Executive of the Singapore International Chamber of Commerce to respond on what our two speakers have said, particularly from the perspective of international businesses. Victor. Thank you very much, Christopher. And hello, everybody, great to be here. Um, I'd like to thank Beatrice and Linda for uh, two very, very good presentations, which highlight um, many of the problems that Singapore and other countries are facing. Um, the, if you like, it's almost been a perfect storm. We've had a year and will probably have most of this year disrupted due to COVID-19 and the effects of the pandemic. Um, We've had um, all the economic dislocation that comes with that, uh, including debt, uh, including uh, the inability to save all jobs and all companies. Um, and I suppose that's one of the reasons that this conference has got reset as its title, because the model that brought us to this point for Singapore is no longer the model that will take us forward. And I think Linda in particular stressed some of the 
serial challenges that Singapore has got. Uh, and it wasn't just um, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew back in 2002. Uh, Dr. Gokeng Sui in the early 70s said much the same, that the risk of focusing so much of Singapore's focus on foreign direct investment for the best of developmental reasons was of course to the detriment of uh, encouraging indigenous private sector, what we all know and love to call uh, SME uh, businesses to thrive and grow. And I think there's a huge opportunity for Singapore to reset. Um, part of the development of the country's economy by virtue of necessity, back when we became an independent republic in the mid 1960s, was that we needed FDI from predominantly Western countries in order to kickstart our economy and to start providing the jobs which would in turn provide the quality of life uh, for citizens and residents. And that Western orientation uh, is no longer relevant. Uh, I think Linda and, and Beatrice stressed this point that really ASEAN is the growth story. Asia, of course, but ASEAN is key. And one of the challenges we face as a business community is that we know less about ASEAN today than our forebearers did in 1965. And that's something that we need to build back. Uh, and it has ramifications uh, for um, you know, the teaching of regional languages in schools at an early age in order to have a, uh, an ability to connect, an ability to build partnerships and collaborations and there to innovate and to solve real human problems and take advantage of the growth that is in ASEAN. The, um, the, the talent issue, of course, has always been central to Singapore. We will never produce sufficient talent of our own. So we need to make sure that we keep open in order to attract the best and the brightest, particularly to stimulate private entrepreneurship. But I think that, um, as Linda herself uh, commented, FDI will always be part of the mix, but it will necessarily become less of a factor. And therefore, with the increase in technology and the application of technology and digitalization, the reliance on labor will reduce, which is a good thing because countries are needing to keep their own labor in their own countries increasingly. Um, and we are a rapidly aging society in Singapore and digitalization and artificial intelligence will give a fillip to that economy of ours. Other bright spots, I think, for the Singapore economy are acting as that developmental hub for climate change mitigation solutions. Uh, we're ideally placed to do that. Uh, we're I, uh, at the ideal size. We've got the brain power. We have the capital. This is something we should really focus on. And it's all about being more useful to more people as Singapore builds renewed relevance in a very different world. So I'll stop there um, and look forward to the, the Q&A. Thank you. Thanks, Victor. Um, again, uh, you, you mentioned uh, a number of times uh, the, you know, the potential for uh, Singapore to um, further entrench its, its hub status. Um, 
uh, and maybe we'll come back and, and, and see how that jives with, with what uh, Linda was talking about earlier uh, in terms of disintermediation uh, and the, the necessity to um, sort of you know, um, change uh, the, the, the ecosystem uh, away from uh, far distant markets to um, more local perhaps. Um, if I can now turn to uh, Professor Danny Kwa, who is Dean and Lee Kashing Professor of Economics at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. He was also the moderator of this morning's first conference session on jobs and skills. And I'm sure we we'll can pick up on some of the common threads from there in our discussion later. Prof Danny. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Beatrice and Linda for such wonderful, vibrant opening statements on the challenges ahead of us. Uh, and thank you, Victor, for, for clearing some of these issues and putting them on the table so clearly. I found it, I was quite struck by how Beatrice's uh, roundup of the problems that beset the global economy and beset Singapore's place in it, it was, it had COVID-19 quite central in the analysis. A lot of the issues that we were worrying about in Beatrice's uh, discussion, Beatrice's analysis, turned on what was happening to debt, what was happening to inequality, what was happening to fiscal space uh, because of COVID. And, and Linda's comments were on much longer run trajectories, issues that go well back before COVID and that will continue to be with us. And so in my comments, what I'd like to do is pick up on both of these threats, disparate that they are, but try and weave them together because I think it's by putting them together that we, we, we see a way ahead. So in thinking through what's been said, what I'd like to do is to, you know, in the time that I've got, make two observations and advance one proposal for Singapore's economy. So two observations, one proposal. So the observations uh, will pick up on what Beatrice and Linda have said. My first observation is that when we talk about the COVID-19 global pandemic, we need to acknowledge that it is a shock that is on the one hand profound and on the other hand differentiated. What do I mean by that? Well, it's profound. COVID has infected 90 million people worldwide. It's killed almost 2 million people. How is the pandemic differentiated? Well, when you add up the numbers across different parts of the world, they actually are quite different. The US, you know, the world's, the international system's hegemon for almost the last century. It has 4% of the world's population. But to date, the United States accounts for 25% of the world's infections and 20% of the world's global deaths. It is also the world's richest economy. In contrast, fast forward to different parts of the world, those parts of the world that Beatrice said, in that IMF map, which I've just brought up as well, look safer. China, Singapore, New Zealand. These three nations, which are very different in political complexion, very different in size, but together they have been successful in dealing with the COVID-19 challenge at the same time that their economies are set to take off. In China, New Zealand, and Singapore, COVID-19 deaths per million have hovered between three and five, between three deaths per million and five deaths per million. In the United States, 1,136. And let's not let the EU get away with suggesting that it's actually done quite well in this. The EU 
891 deaths per million. If the United States had the same death rate as Singapore, instead of 376,000 deaths today, it would have seen just 1,600. If it had the same ratio as China, just 1,100. But is this differential just a re reflection of economic choices that each nation, each nation has made? Well, I suggest no. For the same reason that, that Beatrice has shown us in her description of the map, when I correlate the death statistics with growth forecasts going forwards, the relation is first positive. The more deaths, the more, the more you've been able to get your economy uh, sort of still traveling along. But then it turns decidedly negative. The lower the death rate, the more your economy is going to be able to come strong in recovery out of the recession. This repeats and draws out a bit what Beatrice told us in, her, in the session. The story is a dynamic one, and we need to learn lessons from different parts of the world on economic policy intertwined with COVID policy. We are not yet at a stage where we need to be pivoting towards concerns about creative destruction. And in my view, it is too early to start worrying about debt GDP ratios. Sure, worry about those, but we are far from out of the woods as far as COVID-19 and economic recovery is concerned. My second observation, however profound a shock this pandemic has been, I go back to what Linda says. It comes together with disturbances that were already undermining fundamentals in the global economy. Fundamentals that are important for Singapore, for Singapore's prosperity and progress. I think of there being three such fundamentals, each under attack from a range of directions. Rules-based open international system that allow nations security and transparency of intent, hugely important to a nation like Singapore. Globalization, the second of these, the ever-increasing ease with which everything becomes available to more and more of us wherever we are on the planet at lower and lower costs. And third, to pick up on Linda's last point, growth for the many, rising economic activity that drew everyone into gainful employment and therefore lifted all. Each of these visions is under attack. Each of these visions has been critical in building Singapore's economy. So these two observations lead me to be very worried about the state of the global economy. Let me finish. I promise two observations and a proposal. Here's the end of my, my intervention, the proposal. Obviously, we should control the pandemic. Obviously, we should repair relations across nations. Those are big projects that call for global cooperation and collaboration. But my proposal in this session's discussion focuses work on the local. What should we do in Singapore's domestic economy? So my ending is twofold. This is my proposal. In Singapore, let's now drive not for maximum efficiency, but for the right mix between performance and resilience. Don't get caught out again by the next pandemic. And then second, encourage gains in productivity, but do so for high performing sectors that raise demand for labor. Don't look for gains in productivity that shed workers. Both of these changes 
are technological advancements that raise productivity. But the first, the demand pull, draws workers out of low productivity industries, raises per capita income, and generates upward social mobility. The second, technology advances that shed workers do exactly the opposite. Lowest per capita income among the great uh, fraction of the population generates downward social mobility, creates unemployment, and disguise unemployment. So I conclude the three points that I made. COVID and the geopolitical situation have placed the global economy and Singapore's economy at risk. We all remain at risk. Let's not worry yet about challenges that will come two years down the road. Finally, any crisis is a terrible thing to waste. I have made two proposals by which the Singapore economy and the global economy can look for sustained economic success that's inclusive, that provides an escalator that continues to pull everyone upwards going forwards. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Prof. Danny. Uh, again, uh, you know, uh, it'll be nice to take your, um, your, your final proposals uh, and have that discussion, uh, not just now in this session, but, but also uh, in our following sessions. Uh, we will have um, on the 19th of, of, of January, uh, uh, Tuesday from now, um, a, um, a, a discussion on multilateralism and global cooperation. And, and, and I think um, you know, so many of you have already talked about this, uh, uh, you know, the changing nature of, of uh, global cooperation. Um, I also want to return uh, to this idea of, of um, you know, uh, it's, it's still too early to worry about debt. Uh, before I pose questions from the audience, may, may I uh, then return to this idea of the, uh, this, this global debt burden, perhaps not so much uh, in the near term, because we, we understand that, that clearly uh, we are still not through the, the, the woods in terms of, of the pandemic. Um, you know, we do need to make sure that, that, that things are uh, stabilized uh, before uh, we think about um, the longer term effects. But you know, if, if, if I may ask you um, to really then consider that, um, because we are thinking about resetting ourselves for the long term. And, you know, clearly the issue of, of uh, this rising global debt burden uh, will have implications on very long-term economic growth, inflation, rates of return, and, and it will clearly affect the potential trajectory of, of our, um, our growth prospects and, and how we generate uh, prosperity and progress for ourselves. Um, it's also very pertinent to the returns to business, uh, and um, how policymakers uh, devise uh, fiscal and monetary policies. It's, it's li clearly likely that uh, Singapore takes its first steps in issuing debt to finance public expenditure in the next year or two. So uh, if I may uh, ask uh, you to chime in with your thoughts on this issue, uh, maybe ask uh, Professor Beatrice to kick us off on this issue, uh, and then uh, we'll, we can go around uh, the panel. Uh, yes, very happy to. Uh, debt and debt crisis are actually one of my specialties. I have uh, been studying um, sovereign debt crises and their uh, repercussions for for many years. Um, there used to be a specialty of emerging markets and uh, many emerging markets, in fact, uh, you know, did did. Uh, get to the limits of debt tolerance uh, quite frequently and in some cases serially uh, very famously of course uh, um, Argentina but also others. So let's let me start by saying that the beginning of uh, last year or in the early early P 
period of the pandemic, uh, the question whether we would be looking at a at the typical financial crisis in emerging markets, namely a sudden stop of inflow of capital was very uh, relevant. And it was one of the things that the G20 focused on really early on. That is, it's one of the uh, positive uh, uh, surprises of this pandemic that um, both in terms of emerging markets, but also in terms of financial systems as a whole, uh, so far, this has not been the, maze, the most important concern. It was really, it really is a real sector crisis, and it is a service sector crisis, etc. We know all of that, but it has not so far been primarily a financial crisis. So, looking forward now, does this mean that we are out of the woods? Obviously not, because debt levels are uh, high and will rise. Uh, in all forecasts, they will continue to rise because. Uh, too fast a withdrawal of stimulus um, and a, a austerity uh, is is one of the would be one of the mistakes that the IMF and others are already clearly warning of. The other side is that I do see that there is a certain um, fear of debt and and a and a uh, dislike of seeing. Um, uh, debt levels that have historically not been observed in peace times like this and that right now what absolutely one of the absolutely crucial questions is what markets um, expect in terms of the conditions for financing debt and right now for many countries the, these conditions continue to be extremely benign so i was looking at interest rates in switzerland um, for 50 years right now they are negative for 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 uh, government debt 50 years i mean this is absolutely uh, crazy. <laughs> uh, but but that, that's, that's the reality. Uh, governments can issue, many governments can issue debt at very, very low rates. And this is expected to continue for quite a while. So debt sustainability concerns present themselves in a different way than they would have with different interest rates. Higher, we don't have to be worried about that so quickly. But this does not mean that we do not have to think very carefully about stress scenarios, about risk scenarios, about further shocks that could hit countries, individual countries or the global economy. And that may change the outlook uh, for, uh, for uh, both uh, uh, inflation, interest rates uh, and debt. So um, this is a very, very live conversation in much of Europe. Um, and and uh, for instance, I'm I'm a member of one of the of, of a high level commission in France that is looking at what should be the trajectory of debt going forward. Um, it's a it will be a very live conversation. And of course, again, the, the the two forces to be balanced is not too much too fast uh, going into austerity, but on the other hand the uh, sort of trusting that we can sustain these high levels of debt in the long run future is also it's bet basically betting on uh, very, very low interest rates for a very, very, very long time. And that's that's a bet. Thanks, Prof. Beatrice. Um, Prof. Danny, uh, any, any rejoinders on that? Yeah, I'm happy to come in on this. I you know, I, I don't at all disagree with, with uh, Beatrice's statement on, you know, our trying to get the right margin between the situation where we are now, where, you know, interest rates remain low, 
our economies continue to need uh, stimulus, our people continue to need support. And the situation later on when interest rates do start to rise and we begin to worry about, uh, about you know, interest payment on debt and, and how that might end up being something that impoverishes us. But I would also maybe like to add to the description. I mean, in, in previous, in historical situations, when we've seen the, the, most, uh, the, the most egregious of corrections in economic trajectory due to debt crises, those have been, those have taken place where we identify uh, nations or citizens uh, from actively living beyond their means, from, from living a delusion that has financed their consumption uh, well, be, well ahead of their productive capacity because uh, you know, signals have been distorted, uh, corruption and market corruption has set in, markets are not working right, transparency is, is not there, and all of that sets in place this dangerous debt crisis bubble. That is not the situation we're in now. We're in a situation where governments need this fiscal and monetary injections to actually not only just to, not, not to create a boom in the economy, far from it, but to keep the economy ticking over, to have the worst ill effects of hysteresis, keep that from setting in, to keep people from starving, to allow them to, 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 to continue to, to uh, keep the engine ticking over so that when the upturn comes around and recovery comes, they'll be actually all set to go. And it strikes me that when we think about trying to assess how governments spend money, what goes into debt, what isn't, just as with private sector, we need to try and understand what they use that, that fiscal stimulus that going into debt for. So that's on the one side. On the other side, you know, historically, we have a range of means by which we can try and work out excessive debt GDP ratios. First, some economies never seem to need to do so. Japan has never seemed to need to do so. But for regular other economies, there are orderly workouts through arrangements with creditors. There are small bouts of controlled inflation that do not get out move into a hyperinflation situation. There are bouts of austerity that are understandable, where people can see a boom in production, but are convinced to keep their consumption low to help pay off the debt and interest payment on that. So you can imagine gradual adjustments to try and work through the debt crisis when it does emerge. But I think Beatrice and I agree, right now, the global economy is facing still a minus 5.5% prediction in growth. This is not a situation where people are living beyond their means and drinking champagne and, and going to debt to finance an extravagant lifestyle. Thank you. Back to you, Chris. Great. Thanks, Danny. Um, and Linda, uh, you, you, you wrote a, a, an article last year about um, th this particular issue and in particular um, Singapore's um, policy in terms of issuing debt. Um, you know, any any comments uh, you'd like to make? Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's a, the consensus is pretty strong that uh, the breadth and depth of the pandemic recession is going to take, you know, maybe 10 years to work out. So we're nowhere at the point where you get inflation due to uh, capacity constraints, right? So it's that, that the so the depth of recession is one thing. Secondly, borrowing rates are low, as everyone has said. 
Thirdly, rates are low, not just because of um, central bank monetary stimulus, but also because of high savings rates. In a range of countries, uh, what used to be called global savings glut, now some people call it a global credit glut, regardless, yeah, why do we have uh, an asset price uh, boom or bubble, right? Because there's tons of money chasing not enough um, uh, good return uh, investment. So that's going to uh, takes a while to work out that excess uh, liquidity. And then finally, if we do end up with um, uh, inflation, for example, we have all the tools. We know and all the experience, uh, you know, to turn a negative interest rate positive, it's not like a big deal. It's not like something that we, we can't do. So yes, I think that you have to think in terms of government debt issuance, you have to think of the opportunity cost, right? If there's tons of free money around, why not borrow it to invest in something that will increase your productive capacity and your productivity so that you can easily repay the debt down the line? There will be some emerging markets which for various reasons cannot do that as easily, but that's why we have an international uh, institution that would help them with that. Great, thanks, Linda. You know, maybe I can uh, turn to to Victor now um, because it does have implications on um, businesses uh, and the way that they calculate um, their investment returns. Uh, the risk-free rate um, is is negative, as we just heard. Um, you know, and, and, and I guess, uh, you know, what does that mean for the prospect of, of investment and, and, and business, um, you know, uh, spend expenditure uh, investment? Well, uh, first of all, I think the, the, the debt issue um, is it's not as if anybody wanted to get into this situation, but the whole world virtually has been forced to do it. Um, and therefore, it was completely necessary and will be for some time as uh, as my fellow panelists have said, in order to mitigate the worst effects of the pandemic on those sectors of the economy that have been most impacted, hospitality, travel, aviation, aerospace, and so on, and retail for that matter. But um, the, the debt crisis, um, it needn't be a debt crisis if the debt can be managed in a collaborative and sensible way. And the fact that it is a global problem given the extraordinary impact of this virus, the chances are that um, are, are better than they would be at any other time. And I agree completely with Beatrice on the point that this is not your typical um, you know, Argentinian problem of the 1970s or 80s, it's not. Um, in terms of what it means for business, um, you look at the stock markets, there's an awful lot of money sloshing around looking for a home. So I don't think there's, an, there's necessarily a, um, uh, a, a crisis of investment. It's what is going to get people the best possible return. Um, and as always, that's where businesses will be thinking. You know, what are the problems that we could solve as a business? Uh, how much can we charge for those services or those products? Uh, who can we get finance from to help us build our capabilities, capacity, distribution, and so on? So I, I, I'm very positive uh, that um, the debt that governments across the world have had to take on to keep people on life support um, will be rationally managed because it's in everybody's best interest that that happen. 
because we are interdependent, interconnected like never before, and we are all in the same boat, bailing the water out. Great, thanks, uh, Victor. Uh, it sounds as if the uh, the, the panel is, is is largely comfortable uh, with, with the idea um, of the um, the kind of the global debt burden and and what it's being uh, put to, the uses to which it's being put. Um, the, the, the thing that I maybe uh, want to uh, then probe further, because it does link into a couple of the questions that, um, that have been posed uh, online, and maybe I can just uh, pause here and, and ask uh, the, the, the audience uh, to, again, continue to pose your questions to our panelists via the questions box in this forum page. Uh, we've got already a few, uh, but maybe if I can take some of these questions and then uh, group them uh, and then pose them to, to the panel, uh, please, uh, uh, if you can, uh, we can do that, uh, that'd be great. Um, so uh, the question that I think is linked to our just uh, this completed discussion on, on, on debt uh, and its effects um, is the, the idea that um, you know, we have this disconnect uh, between um, uh, sort of asset markets and the uh, continued uncertainty in the uh, economic and business environment. Um, and, and, you know, um, so, so that's one angle, um, you, know, you know, this disconnect and maybe how that might be resolved. Uh, but but um, maybe more importantly uh, for, for us uh, is the issue of the effects on uh, distribution uh, of these gains, the, the, the winners and losers. Um, you know, so, you know, if, if, if you can um, maybe have a think about, you know, uh, this, um, this, this um, effects uh, of the, um, uh, the, the rising asset markets um, on, um, on, on the issues of uh, growing inequality, uh, that'd be great. So um, if I may, um, you know, ask, um, I don't know, uh, Beatrice, if it, would you like to um, kick off and, and take that? Well, the rising uh, asset prices, in particular stock prices, have uh, had an effect uh, which at the top has meant that uh, wealth has increased. So uh, at the very top, um, uh, some of the most wealthy people have had a good pandemic in that sense. Uh, the bigger, the bigger issue, though, is in terms of numbers, is the one that I was uh, that I was emphasizing when I was talking about the rising inequality, and that is, in fact, ab among the people who have the lowest education, who already had the lowest wages to start with, and who now also uh, have been at the highest risk to lose their jobs, um, especially in countries where. The, uh, the, the, the way to deal with the pandemic was through unemployment and then maybe, maybe in some cases support to households, but not everywhere. Not all countries had the fiscal space or the opportunities to do this. In many countries, as we know, also around here, around Singapore, um, uh, Philippines, for instance, there was a lockdown uh, without, the, uh, without the support to people. So that's it's the it's the, um, the 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 already those who were on the margin, uh, possibly even on the margin of poverty, that uh, that have been hit uh, most severely. And this this rise in inequality, uh, how much this will reverse and how quickly is a, is is a really a big question because that brings us in part to the question that you were asking before um, about uh, hysteresis. Um, when you have been out of a job for a long time, is the job still going to be there? Are you still going to be the right person for the job? 
This assumes that the jobs are not changing, but at the same time, one of the consequences of this pandemic, I think as Linda was very rightly emphasizing, are going to be some major structural changes also in terms of the composition of the sectors that will be, uh, will be growing going forwards and those that will continue to decline talking about tourism and other uh, sort of service sectors that will not uh, come back. So to that extent, uh, the, 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 the shock, the negative shock uh, at the bottom end of the, of the income distribution may be much, much more persistent and, uh, and, and, and more global. So um, I, I don't think that there is a, that, that's, that's the big story of the pandemic in terms of rise of inequality. Um, Prof. Danny, uh, any? Uh, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for, for raising this. Uh, it's a very tricky question, Chris. I think that the, uh, on the one hand, um, there's a convenient, easy explanation for this disconnect between financial markets, asset markets, and the real economy, right? Cheap money, uh, monetary stimulus in many other parts of the world have fueled the rise in asset prices seemingly without bound. Now, that's supposed to be part of the monetary mechanism where rising asset prices make financing investments cheaper at the margin. Uh, investments should rise, real activity should rise. And of course, not only did this not work in the COVID-19 pandemic, it's probably a good thing that it didn't work in the COVID-19 pandemic. Because remember, the whole point of shutting down economic activity was not because uh, we did it on a whim. It was not because you know we were hit by a shock that shut it down. It was because we were trying to keep people from getting sick and dying, and that was why we had to sort of throttle back on economic activity. So, so some of this has been uh, uh, an economic policy that had had unintended consequences, but we're left with this disconnect and is hugely consequential going forwards. The I I am a bit hesitant about. Um, pushing the inequality connection as much as maybe some of my fellow panelists have done. Because when what, what really is critical is that the pandemic means that human-facing value-add economic activity is now more difficult to do. And that happens at low levels of productivity with, uh, with certain kinds of, of low-wage workers. It also happens with high levels of productivity, high-wage workers. There are high-wage sectors, high-productivity sectors for which that's not an issue. Distance presence, tele, uh, programming, distant, uh, distant finance, all of these things happen as a separation. Those are the ones that have been successful. So we really need to unpack the connection between the COVID pandemic and inequality is not always the direct linear one that I think is, is, is easy to, to try and, and, and blame. I think the complications that emerge, you know, the kind of outbreak that we saw in foreign worker dormitories here in Singapore, Chris, you'll remember the dark days of April and May, that could also just as easily have come out in, uh, in a, in a, in, in groups of old pensioners, groups of old age pensioners, they were all living together in Florida. Uh, you know, so gated communities elsewhere in the world that put people, rich people, in close contact with one another. So it's really so unpacking the physical and scientific nature in this pandemic before we, we tag inequality as one of the big culprits here. Having said all that, 
given the way uh, we've constructed our economies, this is an issue, which is also part of why I think that we need going forwards. It's not, we, we shouldn't be thinking about building back better. We should be just thinking about building better. Forget about the going back. Forget about going back to the old structures. Build structures that are resilient, that keep us from having to, to put poor people constantly in contact with other poor people. We remove that it'll be a huge change. And then we worry about the inequality issue separately. Cool. That's great. Um, thanks, Danny. Um, any uh, thoughts on this, uh, Victor, Linda? Uh, particularly, uh, you know, maybe on the, on the topic of, of um, uh, uh, distribution, right? Um, and, and I think um, Danny talked about um, certain uh, groups of, of, of workers, of people that, that are going to be, uh, continue to be disadvantaged. Um, you know, are we thinking about, um, you know, at the, the um, you know, maybe the tax regime, uh, and if, if um, you know, I can, I can introduce that that comment, uh, that that topic or the concept. Uh, maybe you know, uh, would you like to have a, a go at that? Um, uh, go ahead, um, Linda. Please go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, yes, I think the pandemic has, as we've all noted, highlighted trends that are already underway like uh, increased inequality, including the inequality, not just among categories of labor, but between capital and labor. So in the US, for example, there is talk of uh, more uh, capital gains taxes, estate taxes, which Singapore incidentally doesn't have, right? We don't have capital gains tax and we have zero uh, estate or inheritance tax. So if you're interested in inequality, if you're interested in fiscal sustainability, if you're interested in discouraging um, excessive exuberance in asset markets, whether it's property markets or capital markets, then there is a positive role, not just a redistributive role, but an efficiency uh, argument for um, capital gains uh, taxes and inheritance taxes. And I think we'll see a lot of that coming out in um, uh, the US in uh, policy discussions going forward. And of course, the US, the reason we talk about the US is not only because it's the largest economy, but because there's the most research. You know, people are just doing research constantly. They have all the data, they have all the research. Doesn't mean that what happens in the US is the same everywhere else. But I think that you can tie your initial question of asset markets versus the real economy with uh, the inequality aspects through the tax regime. And that's something that people, including Singapore, will have to rethink. Great. And, and Victor, um, you know, again, uh, that, that might impact on, on businesses. Uh, what are your views? Well, I, I, I think Singapore has, has had for decades a progressive tax system. And my guess is it will have to be more progressive, um, both because, of course, businesses are doing less well and therefore not making as much profit and therefore be paying less tax. And it will be the higher uh, earning or wealthier segments of society that will, will have to bear more of the burden. Um, so I think that that is almost inevitable. It's a question of when. Um, in terms of inequality, there has always been inequality and pre-COVID there was already so much um, negativity and a negative sentiment among so many workers in so many countries about the effects of globalization. Um, 
And that was because of a failure of domestic policy in each of those countries, where the, you know, the rush to outsource jobs and capabilities for purely business or commercial reasons without uh, any concern for the people left behind in the home country um, uh, was, was basically storing up a problem that has now come to bite and bite hard. Uh, and if you like, Mr. Trump is a symptom of that and an exploiter of, of those sentiments. Uh, he's able to tap into um, those sentiments and press all the right buttons and all the right levers uh, to get the, the support for his view of the world. So inequality is an issue, but it's an issue that needs to be tackled by domestic policy. And of course, Singapore has probably been the most socialist capitalist state in living memory because we have always been a heavily redistributive society. And yet we too have significant inequalities in our society as a result of the phenomenal economic growth and success in one generation uh, from sort of backward divided post-colonial city to a global city we have today. And I can remember 36 years ago when I first came here, we were a much more egalitarian society than we are today because affluence and economic success, whether you like it or not, divides people into those that benefit the haves and those that benefit less. So the inequality issue, I agree with the speakers, must be dealt with, but it's a, it's a job for domestic policy um, uh, to, to tackle. Finally, the issue about the difference between the stock markets and the real economy is largely because the stock markets are barometers of investor sentiment about what's going to happen in the future, uh, because they're always looking for the next big thing uh, to make a return on. And that's where you get this, uh, in addition to all the stimulus that has happened because of the pandemic, this is where you've got this big disconnect between stock market activity and you know real life for ordinary people on main street great thanks victor um and and maybe we can uh you know kind of may, then move on to other questions i think they are related um and and, and really talk about um uh the this hub status that uh, i think linda talked about i think everybody talked about it um you know the singapore's hub status uh, going forward um, Linda mentioned this idea of the, the threat of disintermediation uh, on uh, Singapore's hub, uh, but, but I think also, Victor, you talked about the, the, the possibility of the emergence of a, a green uh, financing hub, um, and I think um, you know, we, 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 we can imagine uh, that there are other areas where um, Singapore might also uh, develop this uh, capability uh, to, to connect uh, people, um, of course, in the uh, region. Uh, but but also uh, globally. Uh, so uh, again, if I may, uh, you know, uh, Victor, uh, you've just spoken, but but uh, maybe I can throw that back to you first, and then the other panelists uh, can also weigh in if 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 you want to. Yeah, I mean, I think Singapore Singapore's relevance as a hub um, to the region um, will change and evolve, but it's still it's still very relevant, and it still will create jobs and business, provided our services or goods are relevant to the region that we live in. And, you know, the ASEAN economic community that was launched 
in late 2015, uh, very much as an aspiration, uh, not a fact. It doesn't exist yet, um, but it's um, that market of 650 million people um, certainly must offer businesses from all over the world, and particularly those based in Singapore, great opportunities for innovation, problem solving, and so on. In my comments about um, climate change mitigation, I wasn't specifically thinking of green finance, although that is one element. Um, I was thinking more of climate change mitigated solu mitigation solutions, which um, we can test bed in, in Singapore and then roll out and adapt for other markets. I think that is a huge opportunity um, for the business community in, in Singapore. Uh, Linda, any any thoughts? Yep. Um, yes, I mean, I think because Singapore is small, because we have, you know, are rich, uh, have, you know, good uh, educational uh, um, foundations and so on, there should be many opportunities for us to develop, not necessarily as a hub. I mean, I, you know, the hub, is kind of uh, uh, implies connecting other parties. And I think that is not something, you want to be an origin hub, right? Not a connecting hub. And one of my disappointments of, disappointments of observing uh, Singapore's uh, economic development over the last 40 plus years, including reading every economic reviews committee report, every economic strategies committee report for the last 30 years, which are all the same. So the anal underlying analysis has not changed. It's our response hasn't, hasn't been up to the mark. I have been, I, I go with Victor entirely. Why were we and are we not a leader? Why are we always a follower? Why are we always a fast forward? Why did we not jump into, for example, uh, decarbonization and so on, given where we are? Um, and I think one of the reasons is because it's been too easy for us to piggyback on the monopoly profits of global corporations. Instead of, you know, global corp let global somebody innovate somewhere else and then we jump on their back and get a bit of the stream. I think we need to focus much more on originating ideas, innovations, not just following global trends. That's our long-term history. That's what made us. Our forefathers and mothers were all entrepreneurs who came out and took risk in Southeast Asia, uh, as well, you know, in Singapore, to that extent, was a natural hub. And I think this connects everything. If we look at jobs, for example, we know that SMEs, local private entrepreneurs, are the source of most jobs everywhere, including in that most status of economies, China. Right? Over 90% of job creation in China comes from these uh, small guys running around in the interstices of the economy. And we need to be like that, particularly because we are small. Our state of piggybacking on big corporations is no longer, it's not going to help us, particularly when we don't know what, you know, being status is fine if you're catching up, right? You're climbing up the ladder. But when you're at the top, there's nowhere to go. You either fall down or you fly. So we need to get ourselves into a mode where we fly. We don't just look for 
oh, what niches in the global employment creation can we fill? And let's then train our people to fill that niche. And oh, what if that niche moves? You know, so we're constantly in catch up mode, in follower mode. I think if you're talking about reset, a major reset that we need is to get back into doing um, initial, yeah, initiation being your own initiator of uh, innovations, of enterprise, uh, and of uh, job creation. And where does that come from? We can't look for leaders elsewhere. We have to look in our own neighborhood. We have to go out there. We have to um, equip ourselves to go out into Southeast Asia, which is one of the first, if not the second most fast growing region in the world for the next 50 years. Why aren't we in there telling other people like, you know, what to do? I know that the Chinese executives I'm training have done that themselves. You know, Chinese, regular Chinese, not supported by government scholarships, go to Sabah, to go to the local universities, to learn the language, to uh, develop networks for business. Because I think one thing the pandemic has taught us is that there are, I guess you could say black swans everywhere, right? And so we cannot, the state can no longer tell us where to go. Big multinationals can no longer tell us where to go. We have to figure that out for ourselves. And I think that is a quite a different mindset shift that we need and that we can do. If we can't do with all our education, all our capital, then I think, uh, as Lee Kuan Yew would have said, we're finished. Great. Chris, can I come in on this as well? Just a small oh, yeah. thought on the, the hub discussion, which is fascinating. And of course, it's very much part of what, what all our policy concerns are. But one of the things that I thought might, I, I was trying to organize the way this conversation was going. We talk a lot about how we can be a hub in this. We can be a hub in that. What should we be doing to do this? We are talking about the supply side of being a hub. We're talking about providing hub facilities. We don't talk a lot about what the demand side is. Who's on the other side of the market that we want to be a hub for? What's the need? What's the itch that we want to scratch with our hub status that would really consolidate and solidify our position of relevance and, and gain? not just for the people here, but for the region. So in thinking about this, I thought, you know, one of the issues, I mean, painfully, we're aware of how COVID-19, we should have brought the entire world together, has actually been politicized in all kinds of dangerous ways. Well, here's an idea. Why don't we be a hub that is a center for disease control? We have the intellect, we have the science and engineering expertise. We need to be bringing people together across the region in a concerted way, not competing away rents meaninglessly, but in a concerted way. And that's the direction, it seems to me, that we should be pushing our hub discussion. What is the itch we're trying to scratch? Who's on the other side of this market that we want to be a hub for? Back to you, please. Great. Uh, Beatrice? Yes, uh, it, it's... Uh, it, very convenient that I was exactly going to talk about the um, fact that in my view, there is a large demand for hub functions and for actual intermediation um, for connecting. And I am making a bit of an association between Singapore and Switzerland. 
Switzerland has also been a country that has traditionally had a hub function that brought different uh, parties together and that used this function very um, well for its own benefits to also uh, to also develop its own industry, its own services in particular. So where I see a huge demand is, again, in this analogy, is in the, is in the safe haven, essentially, status, which then leads to financial, uh, to the financial hub, uh, leads to the fact that Singapore is uh, growing in the area of private wealth management, that it is a area, it is a, and, and will uh, remain uh, one of the places where people think that they want to have their savings because it is safe uh, and because they trust the institutions and they are convinced that uh, uh, there is going to be both macroeconomic and other types of stability. All of those properties I have just mentioned apply equally to Singapore and Switzerland. So that you could say, well, it's already there, um, but it's also something that you have to safeguard and appreciate. Uh, it's not only the demand for manufacturing or um, or other types of, of production. It, it this this type of uh, uh, producer of stability and uh, and and uncertainty. Uh, attracting, uh, um, producing ultimately what is a safe asset uh, is, is very valuable. Um, but the other side, in terms of, um, uh, in, in terms of the going forward, what, where I do see, and Linda put this very starkly, where I do see one of the big challenges is going to be the question whether uh, the two superpowers uh, go into a mode in which they uh, increasingly use extraterritorial types of uh, enforcement, sanctions, um, industrial policy um, as, as uh, tools, and that would then uh, seriously endanger some of the, some of the global hubs, uh, including Singapore. Great. Um, uh, Linda, you had uh, another rejoinder? Yes, I think that the whole concept of a safe haven is actually uh, problematic, particularly going forward. We have seen all the uh, tax, uh, beggar, the, 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 all the attacks on beggar my neighbor tax policies in places like Switzerland, Luxembourg, Ireland, Singapore, Hong Kong, etc. I think that whole safe from what, safe from whom, are you positioning yourself as a place where capital not made from uh, transparent or even legal sources finds a home. So I think it actually enhances a lot of at least the rhetoric, if not the reality of anti-inequality uh, policies, especially among our neighbors. Okay, so I think that positioning ourselves as a safe haven, particularly for footloose capital from our neighboring countries, which we say are corrupt, whereas we are not, actually puts us at real risk of making ourselves part of a regional grouping where we have collective values and so on. And this is not just a Singapore specific thing, but this is a global thing. You have seen all the attacks and safe havens. So I would at least not use that term. Interesting. Thank you. Interesting. 
it's um, it's interesting that you're talking about neighbors and it maybe uh, relates uh, to what um, uh, Victor and, and Danny were also talking about earlier and also Beatrice uh, on on this whole issue of of the region right and and maybe uh, if we can turn the discussion now in the last minutes that we have uh, to um, you know our, our neighbors our neighborhood um, and, and where we see um, the kind of the, the opportunities and, and how we might uh, develop that because we've been talking about this for some time and, and, and what, what, um, you know, what we do we need to do now to really turbocharge this because it's such an important issue. Uh, Victor, maybe you, 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 if you can kick off uh, first. Certainly. Um, I, I think, you know, Linda has, has um, said this very eloquently that there, there, is, there is a need for a big reset and we should not underestimate the difficulty of achieving it. Because of our historical development and the way our government has by necessity in the early days and then by habit in, in, in later years done all the heavy lifting, it has created a certain dependency mentality which actually depresses entrepreneur, entrepreneurism. And we really, if we're serious about resetting, and I know that we are, we really need to think about how we address those issues. Turning to the region, um, it's exactly Danny's point. Um, who are we trying to serve and what do they need? And until we know what people need, we can't collaborate and build partnerships and build solutions for them. And I think that's critical. Um, and that's what I meant by my comment uh, earlier on about the fact that we need to know more about the region because of the birth of Singapore as an independent republic, we looked to the West. Um, and at the time, the region was a much more dangerous place than it is today. Um, and we need to, if you like, pivot and reset to the region and start working out what people need and then build those solutions and, by definition, those businesses for us that we can uh, meet those needs. I think that's the critical thing. It's knowledge of the region and what it needs. Um, Danny, uh, would, oh, sorry, uh, Linda, please go ahead. Yes, I think there are all kinds of areas where we need not be uh, at odds with our region. Like for example, keeping their capital safe from their tax authorities. That's not something that we want to do to specialize in. Things that we're good at, education, health, that digitalization enables us to do for, with and for other people, and something in which we should be, but for some reason are not on the cutting edge, environment. Let's just go into that. That's enough. We have a hinterland you know, of 700 million, 800 million people or whatever that need education, health, environment, and capital, including human capital. So it's not that hard. It's also areas in which um, our local entrepreneurs can do stuff. I mean, I've been in uh, Pontiana, right, in, in Borneo, and then you will have some little shop there run by a Singaporean who is teaching English or teaching music or whatever. We can use the pandemic and our so-called good performance in it you know, to show this is what we can do, we can help you. There's a lot of soft stuff going on. Um, one of the things that's evolved from the 
the pandemic is the awareness, at least in the US, that you don't just need hard tech skills, you need soft skills to interact with the customer base that's using the tech. And we can develop, we can develop a competitive edge in the soft skills, including language, culture. You know, I can literally fly to Jakarta and back in a day, you know, why not? Uh, in the same time zone and things like that. So I think I absolutely agree that we need a reset and it's not a completely unknown reset. We have been talking about this in 30 years of economic strategy committee reports. Great, thanks Linda. Um, Danny, maybe a, a few remarks. Uh, uh, you know, you, you made some points about, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of the nature of, of, of how we might take advantage of, of certain opportunities. You know, for example, you know, uh, taking advantage of um, workers, um, you know, where uh, I think you, you mentioned that this labor and, um, you know, the, the different layers of labor, maybe you can, um, you know, uh, yeah, final I think that, you know, the, that. Uh, really intriguing, this last conversation we've been having about ASEAN and the region. And I did, as you say, Chris, wanted to marry it back to some of the proposals I had described earlier, about how we manage labor market transitions. And I think that, um, you know, sort of the, the pan-region vision that both Victor and Linda have expressed so well is something that's really important for Singapore to continue to advance on. I mean, not just, in, I mean, certainly in terms of the other side of the market that we provide hub services for, while at the same time, we take care of the distribution of income within the nation. So we make sure that everyone is on that, on that escalator being pulled up by high productivity, not being shed downwards by, by labor shedding. We need to marry these two visions together. But then we mustn't forget also, some of the things that all of us were talking about earlier had to do with engagement with the wider world, the change in geopolitical rivalry, the, the attacks on globalization. Uh, the turning inwards of so many societies. We need to figure out how to traverse that still. And what we ought to be doing is attempting to think about how ASEAN can help multiply the position of our thinking. Right? One small state with five and a half million people won't always have the same impact speaking on the world stage as a fast, the fastest growing economic region in the world with 650 million people right for middle-class transition, hungry for middle-class consumption. That's the kind of muscle that being in this region can bring Singapore and we need to leverage and deploy that fully. Thanks, Danny. I think we are coming uh, very rapidly to the end of our time. Uh, you know, we, we've had a great discussion uh, around, um, you know, many, many things around the global economy. Uh, I think I, I leave uh, tonight the session uh, on a, a rather optimistic note. Uh, I think, um, you know, we, we talked about the, 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 the issues uh, resulting from the, the rising uh, global debt burden, but I think all of you uh, were, were quite um, comfortable uh, with with um, with this uh, with this idea, um, we we have the opportunity to to do good things uh, with 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 debt uh, and 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 focus that on on the right productive investments. Uh, we talked about uh, our hub status, and again, uh, I think you offered some opportunities for us to um, sort of explore uh, different uh, hubs and maybe how we can uh, sort of reposition uh, what we do, our value add, uh, when we offer uh, our hub. Uh, our place, our Singapore, uh, as that hub, uh, maybe originate uh, more 
services and 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 be more of a a, a center rather than a, a gateway. Um, may I? Uh, and also, then we we talked about the the opportunities in the region which we've been talking about, and I hope uh, we we do uh, in the next ten years uh, sort of capture uh, a bulk of these. May I uh, bring the session to a close and convey our thanks to all the panelists, uh, Professor Beatrice Verdudemaro, Linda Lim, Danny Kwa, and Mr. Victor Mills, and all of you for joining in at this late hour uh, and contributing to the discussion. Please continue to put your comments on the session's discussion topics in the conference chat, uh, as they will be very helpful as we proceed through this conference. You will also be able to review the recording of the session at your own time uh, on this conference page. So um, again, uh, thank you uh, all on the panel. Uh, you know, if, if I can uh, sort of round up a, a round of applause for everybody, it, it's hard to do in the setting, uh, but, but please uh, accept our, our, our sincerest thanks. We, we now take a break uh, for, for a day or two. Um, the next session in the conference is in the society track uh, on, um, on Thursday uh, and is entitled Identities and Cohesion. Uh, the session starts at 10 a.m. Singapore time on Thursday. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you there. Good night. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Bye -bye. Thank